Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream number 190? 189. 189, like I said, mm-hmm. like I now have said some people have begun to tire of the fact that we never know what number it is yes or you never know what number it is it's funny how um something about the run-up to the live stream never puts figuring out what number it is at the uh, top of the priority list but uh, for you for me yes that that is that is the sad fact i mean there are bigger defects to have but i i acknowledge it's a defect and uh, for those of you who are suffering from my defect i uh, i apologize So here we are. Yes, I am Dr. Brett Weinstein. You are Dr. Heather Hying. And um, we are here going on um, more than three years. We've been doing this and we're going to we're going to keep doing it, bringing you uh, some of what seems to be going on in the world today, viewed through an evolutionary lens. Indeed. Here at Dark Horse. Uh, We're on Rumble now, and we're also on Locals, and the watch party is happening on Locals right now. We strongly encourage you to join the live conversation that is happening there, Uh, and we got lots of stuff going on at Locals now. We did our private Q&A there this last Sunday. We're releasing guest episodes early there, all for uh, paying members on Locals, so we strongly encourage you to, to join the Dark Horse community on Locals. All right. Um, we're going to talk about uh, free speech today. A uh, little, some Orwellian stuff going on. You know, a little, a, a smidge. A sprinkling, uh, a, a sprinkle of Orwell here, yeah. a, a dash of Huxley there. Um, and the developing brain and uh, gonadotropin releasing hormone and agonists thereof and uh, various Who other things. Who could possibly be an agonist of um, developmental hormones? You mean antagonist. Antagonist, yeah. right. Oh, an agonist. Oh, sure. No, you're right. Mm-hmm. We should all be agonists of the category in general. Yes. 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 Uh, so, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. Um, but first, uh, as always, we have our sponsors, whom we, uh, whom we appreciate greatly. We have three sponsors right at the top of the show. They are this week's Seed, House of Macadamias, and American Hartford Gold. And without further ado, we'll bring those ads to you. Our first sponsor this week is Seed, a probiotic that really works. If you've tried probiotics before and got nothing out of it, try Seed. It's designed differently from other probiotics. It's designed better. It actually works. Your gut and your immune system work together, coordinating your body's response to the world both around and within you. Seed helps improve the health of your gut microbiome, which means that it supports you becoming healthier overall. Our resonant gut microbes directly impact the development and function of the immune system. Even before we're born, microbes inform our immune system. Uh, teaching our, sorry, just wanted to make sure I was in the right week. Am I in the right week? Uh, by definition. Is it number 189? Yes. Oh, you're asking me now. Well, <laughs> no, who's on the other hand I'm now, ain't it? the 189 it? part. That has nothing to do with this. No. Um, okay. Even before, I'm talking about seed, the probiotic, which is awesome, which I took uh, just this morning as, I, as one does, as you should, as I do. Even before we're born, microbes inform our immune system, teaching our body how to distinguish between benign substances and pathogenic antigens, that is, substances that our body does not rec- recognize as its own. You can support your gut immune axis in a variety of ways, including by prioritizing sleep. New research suggests that the gut microbiome has its own circadian clock and that changes to your normal rhythms can disrupt your microbes and the important functions they perform. Prioritizing regular sleep can thus help keep your gut immune axis healthy. You can also support your gut immune axis by taking Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic. Seed is a plant-based prebiotic and probiotic with 24 strains that have been clinically or scientifically studied for their benefits. 
16 of those 24 strains are specifically geared towards digestive health, and four of the 24 probiotic strains are known to promote healthy skin. Your skin, like your gut, has its own microbiome. Seed supports both gut and skin health. Seed is free from 14 major classes of allergens, including but not limited to sugar, animal products, soy, gluten, peanut, glyphosate, dairy, shellfish, and corn. Shellfish should be included in animal products, shouldn't it be? Oh, phylogenetically speaking, this is a slam dunk. Yeah. Also corals. I suspect this is free of coral. Yeah. I think they just... I don't know. It's a major class of allergen, though. That's probably why. No, it's bad for your teeth, though. It wears them down. What was the last? I would be... Unless you're a parrotfish. Which I am not. Ah, good to know. And seed is basically double-hulled with its capsule-in-capsule design. It is engineered to maintain viability through your digestive tract until it reaches your colon where you want it. And the same design makes it resistant to oxygen, moisture, and heat, meaning that no refrigeration is necessary. This is actually huge. Um, you can you know, you can travel with it. Uh, you can keep it in your medicine cabinet. Uh, you don't have to be precious about it like you do with a lot of uh, probiotics. Seeds Daily Symbiotics supports gut, skin, and heart health and micronutrient synthesis. We have heard from several people, including us, who have used seed and report improvements to their digestive function in 24 to 48 hours. So start a new healthy habit today. Visit seed.com slash darkhorse and use code darkhorse to redeem 25% off your first month of Seeds DS01 Daily Symbiotic. That is seed, S-E-E-D, dot com slash darkhorse and use code darkhorse. Our second sponsor this week is House of Macadamias. Tree nuts are delicious and nutritious and generally high in fat and low in carbs. Unlike what various food pyramids and government agencies might have led you to believe, high-fat, low-carb foods are increasingly understood to be both satiating and good for you, yet more reason not to trust either food pyramids or most government agencies. But each species of nut is different, requiring a special mindset and appropriate footwear. Bread. Clogs for some, waiting shoes for others. Regardless of what shoes you have available to you, though, like us, you are likely to find that macadamias are the best nut there is. What footwear do you like when you're eating macadamias? I, when eating macadamias, I do not stick to one type of footwear. I have uh, something casual on the left foot and something a bit more formal on the right. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, it creates sort of a, it a gives, loping. It gait. leaves you prepared yeah. for whatever may happen. You I just... think it actually leaves you equally unprepared for everything. That is also correct. Excellent. Um, macadamia nuts take a very long time to grow, and because they are both rare and highly sought after, they have the dubious distinction of being the world's most expensive nut. The segue from the shoes was really poor there. It's my doing. What segue? Yeah. Between the taste and the health benefits, though, they're worth it. They have even fewer carbohydrates than most other nuts, which makes them the perfect snack for breaking a daily fast and controlling blood glucose. They're also uniquely rich in omega-7s, including especially palmitoleic acid, an unsaturated fat that has been linked to natural collagen production, fat loss, and heart health. And House of Macadamias is intent on making this amazing food accessible to everyone. They have partnered with more than 90 farmers in Africa and now make one-of-a-kind vegan, keto, and paleo snacks. These include their dark chocolate-dipped macadamias and a delicious assortment of bars made with 45% macadamia nuts in flavors including salted caramel and chocolate coconut. But our favorite product of theirs is our... Our? Our? Wow. Is our? The simple, my verbs, is our, is our... An is-are conundrum is second only to an is-ought conundrum, which is famously important. So I think this is a... No, I think you've missed the point. We're going to start, <laughs> we're gonna start declaring, our, we're gonna start, uh, declaring our verbs. Our... Whoa. Yeah. All right. That's next level. <laughs> I know. I know. That's, that, that, that is not brought to you by House of Macadamias, but I hope that they would endorse this, this move. Um, our favorite product of theirs are 
We'll just stick with R for now. The simple salted macadamia is made with Namibian sea salt. They are amazing. We love them and think that you will too. House of Macadamias also makes a delicious macadamia nut oil, which is 100% cold pressed, rich in monounsaturated fatty acids, and has a higher smoke point than olive oil, so is well suited to high heat cooking and baking. And they've got this great new macadamia nut milk, milk, available in individual packets that travel well, so you can add it to a, a drink uh, while you're out. Our House of Academias highly recommends House of Macadamias for all of your macadamic needs. For a limited time, House of Macadamias is offering listeners a free box of their best-selling Namibian sea-salted macadamia nuts worth $35 with your purchase at houseofmacadamias.com slash darkhorse and $20 off your whole order with code darkhorse. Once again, that's www.houseofmacadamias. That's all A's except for the I, M-A-C-A-D-A-M-I-A-S.com. Use code darkhorse for 20% off every order. You won't be sorry. And I just want to clarify that when it says that it is uh, in accordant with a keto diet, that can be with either spelling. Concordant? Either spelling? No, no. Like uh, harmonics? As far as I know, there's only one spelling of concordant that is tolerable. And even that one is a bit iffy. But keto. K-E-T-O, right? Yeah. And Q, is there a U in... Ah, uh, right, the capital city exactly. of Ecuador. Exactly. Is there a U in keto? Yeah. There is a U. I thought there was, and then I worried. There's some word where there's you no U. You should worry. Yeah, yeah. I probably should worry more. Cutter. Q-A-T-A-R. Cutter. That's it. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Cutter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it shouldn't be pronounced that way, or it shouldn't be spelled that way. I don't know which. Either one, something's got to something's got to change. I think it is pronounced that way, and it shouldn't be spelled that way. But yeah. you know, it is what it is. It it does appear to be. I don't know. I haven't been. Yes, it might not be what it is. I have to concede that not very good, but difficult to counterpoint of we yours. Totally sober. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's as as still morning. I mean, right. Yeah. It's it's still morning for us. Yes. All right. And for those of you in Hawaii. And for everyone not listening live, not everyone, some of you not listening live. It's morning in America, and I leave you to choose how you spell that all to yourself. Morning or America. Uh, Morning. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, America, that's again, um, unambiguous on the spelling front. Okay. Uh, Our final sponsor this week (laughs) is American Hartford Gold. If you listen to Dark Horse regularly, then you already know just how incompetent and unstable many of our institutions are becoming. This must be an old script because they have become incompetent and unstable. Interest rates are sky high. We are caught between runaway inflation and recession. We are assured that all is fine, while the cost of food, housing, medical care, schools, and everything climbs. Our leaders are increasingly nonsensical. All of this threatens businesses, jobs, and retirement funds. Finding ways to secure your nest egg and insulate your wealth is more important than ever, and adding precious metals to your assets is a great way of stabilizing your investments to protect your uh, your family's finances. American Hartford Gold uh, is a precious metals dealer that can help you do just that. American Hartford Gold helps individuals and families protect their wealth by diversifying with precious metals. They make it simple and easy to protect your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. That's important. 
With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. They are the highest rated firm in the country with an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. And if you call them right now, they will give you up to $5,000 of free silver on your first qualifying order. Contact them today by visiting the link in the episode description below. Call 866-828-1117. That's 866-828-1117. Or text Dark Horse to 998899. Again, that's 866-828-1117. Or text Dark Horse to 998899. All right. We're back. Thank you. <laughs> I think <laughs> the implication of the long pause after well done suggests that that was not the expectation. The pause after well done was entirely your doing. Oh. <laughs> okay, not as well done as you had thought. Yes. Um, so we've got two fairly different, um, things to bring to you today. Uh, would you like to start or would you like me to start? Uh, geez. Um, you know, I guess I could start. I could start. Um, yeah. Uh, I need you, uh, to do a little beatboxing. You just go a boom, 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 nope. boom. You're not going to do that? Nope. Oh. All right. Uh, well, that leaves me not without, uh, not without uh, warning. Nope. Not without. <laughs> not without warning. Well, all right. Mm. We know what kind of stick in the mud you are. Oh, do we? Not really. Mm -hmm. But uh, all right. So, uh, um, let's talk about X, baby. Orwell and Bradbury. Let's talk about uh. all the good things that have come from being free. Let's talk about X. Let's talk about X. Yes. All right. So awesome. my hope is that my embarrassing myself in that way will that bring awesome. Elon Musk to that clip. And hopefully, Elon, if you're watching, let me just ask, please, brother, unblock me. Um, <laughs> I get it. I, I confess to the crime, but the punishment is, is uh, disproportionate. I will keep the DMs to a bare minimum. But uh, something about Twitter is just not the same when you can't see your tweets because they're redacted. So oh there we are. All right. That is the intro. What, what was Bradbury doing there? Was it just a rhyme? No. Heavens no. In fact, yeah. if it had just been a rhyme, I would have used Huxley. Yeah. But Bradbury, Fahrenheit 451. Bra Fahrenheit 451. Yep. Right. Yep. So that's uh, more relevant than Huxley in yeah. this particular case. Yeah. That's good, man. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. That's, uh, that's me showing my Gen X colors, I think. Okay. I would have to look up when that song, it's Salt and Peppa. But, if, you know, given that you spell Peppa, Peppa. I'm pretty sure that's a Gen X thing. Probably. Yeah. Okay. So the point of this diversion. You're embarrassing your son. <laughs> I'm bit, well, then I know I'm doing my job as a dad because that's kind of how it works. Um, all right. So the what I wanted to uh, deal with was a juxtaposition of two things that uh, crossed my Twitter feed in quick succession um, this week that I thought made a rather interesting point. So, Zach, do you want to show um, that tweet? Which one? Um, the one the citing the Washington Post article. Now, there's something interesting going on here, which I don't quite understand. I'm going to show you a tweet, which is going to show you a headline, and then we're going to show you the article in question. All right, so here is the tweet that caught my attention and it is from the Washington Post. It says, Elon Musk stopped policing political misinformation. The tech industry followed. Um, and that, I thought, was a 
fascinating admission to be coming from the Washington Post. The article now reads, show the live version of the article, Zach. All right, Zach is bringing up the live version of the article in which the title appears different. Now, I don't know if this is because there are multiple pages associated with this or if they actually changed the title so that it now reads, following Elon Musk's lead, big tech is surrendering to disinformation. Okay. So the the headline in the tweet was something about not no longer policing misinformation, and uh, now we are surrendering to disinformation. Yes. Now, I am sure that there is some reason for the two distinct headlines, but I fail to see how one is more protective of the powers that be than the other. Frankly, they both strike me as a well, huge admission. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they both are a, a huge admission, although in the language, you know, post- Post George Floyd, and we are now you know, th more than three years post George Floyd, but um, the um, widespread accepted hatred of the police and resistance being something that you were sort of obligated to do. It feels to me like um, policing is um, always going to have a negative. Well, it will will tend to have a negative valence in an outlet like the Washington Post and uh, and. Um, I don't, I don't know. I can't quite make it fit with surrender. I don't know. You know, you're not supposed to surrender to, to illegitimate tyranny, obviously, ever. Anyway, yeah. But. On the other hand, I mean, I don't, again, I don't know that they changed the headline. All I did was notice that the original thing that had caught my attention has a different headline than the live article, which mm -hmm. could indicate a change or it could indicate that the two things were sourced differently and they show up with different headlines. But if it is a change in the headline, it could be um, to avoid the, the negative connotations of the word policing. On the other hand, changing headlines puts blood in the water and yeah. it's well, a subtle change. Yeah. So stopped policing. Oh, good. Stopped policing. Like, oh, no, no, we don't want you to encourage the stopping of the policing. Right. Right. <laughs> so, but in any case, look, I think they could have improved the title quite a bit. The title could have been something like, uh, we at the CIA through our um, thinly veiled journalistic outlet admit that Brett Weinstein was right and that zero is indeed a special number and therefore, and then the subheading could have been that Elon Musk's uh, embrace of free speech has resulted in a change cascading through the tech industry. That would have been... I think there's a reason you've never been hired as a headline writer. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. You know, I think I think there are probably a lot of reasons, but um, some very good ones, including that you don't seem to... To know, have the, the, the knack? Yeah. 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 yeah um, maybe, maybe stick to rapping. None, well, stick to rapping and predicting the near future, because yes. that's what has happened here. So actually, I want to read a couple paragraphs into this thing, because I think it just does reflect the fact that the model that we presented here, zero is a special number, is apparently true. And you can even read about it uh, in the Washington Post. So scroll down a little bit. Oh, geez. I can help you. Can you make that bigger? Oh, All right. Do you want to read it? Sure. You want me to read just the first couple first paragraphs? First couple paragraphs. Social media companies are receding from their role as watchdogs against political misinformation, abandoning their most aggressive efforts to police online falsehoods in a trend expected to profoundly affect the 2024 presidential election. An array of circumstances is fueling the retreat. Mass layoffs at Meta and other major tech companies have gutted teams dedicated to promoting accurate information online. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> is that what they were doing? An aggressive legal battle over claims that the Biden administration pressured social media platforms to silence certain speech has blocked a key path to detecting election interference. 
All right, that's that, and then it goes on. Uh, and ex CEO Elon Musk uh, has reset industry standards. Uh, it says in a linked fashion, rolling back strict rules against misinformation on the site formerly known as Twitter. So anyway, these people, yeah, these people to write it. These are presumably, I mean, maybe they've offshored this, the writing of this stuff, but these people are presumably Americans who are embracing the destruction of the First Amendment here in one of the premier or formerly premier newspapers in the world. Sure. The, uh, you know, so this is madness, but it is a, even though they have gone through incredible contortions um, to, create a Russell conjugation that makes good things like free speech sound dangerous and terrible, they are nonetheless admitting the point, which is that the game theory means that even a single economic competitor that embraces free speech forces that change on everything else, which tells us how to fight. Mm -hmm. It has told us from the beginning how to fight. That is an amazing acknowledgement. It is a rapid discovery that the pattern unfolds so quickly that they can't even separate them in time. The rest of the industry does not want to be left behind by a platform on which people are still able to speak freely. So good show, Elon. Well done. Except for the following thing. Here on Twitter, well, what the social platform Twitter. Formerly. Yeah. And incidentally, I don't understand how we're supposed to change our lexicon given that X doesn't naturally, you know, you did tweet on X, didn't you? So it seems like Twitter is still alive. Done, but that's still what you're supposed to say. Okay, so um, I'm I'm sticking with Twitter. But here here we are on Twitter this week. We find the following thing from the uh, safety folks, the safety team Twitter. at Twitter. Safety team at Twitter. It says X has a responsibility to put the right systems in place to ensure our communities have access to open, accurate, and safe political discourse. That's why we're hiring more people, updating our policies, and evolving our product. Now, that... I, I don't want to leap to conclusions. Did you read? Did you read the thing you like to? Uh, the blog post, yes, mm -hmm. and it's it reflects exactly what the tweet says. But there's a question about what is going on inside of Twitter. On the one hand, Elon was very clear about his belief in free speech. He did say some stuff that was troubling. In fact, the formulation that he used that freedom of speech is not freedom of reach. While it could have a benign interpretation in the sense that no one has an obligation to amplify speech that they find negative, in the context of a social media platform, that creates cover for de-boosting. Mm -hmm. And the fact is, de-boosting is a violation of the spirit of the First Amendment. The fact is, we're supposed to be able to say whatever it is we think with very minimal limits, the number of things that you legally cannot do under that umbrella are tiny. Mm -hmm. So we are supposed to be able to express any idea. And to the extent that that idea catches on naturally because people decide to listen to it, decide to contemplate it, decide to discuss it, repeat it, whatever they do, that's a natural process. And to the extent that something like Twitter decides to interfere with that and say, well, yeah, you can say whatever you want, um, you know, in a, a soundproof room, that's not freedom of speech. The fact that you can utter the words means nothing. 
The fact that you can utter the words on Twitter means nothing if Twitter is going to cryptically interrupt uh, the spread of the thing. So anyway, we're left with a puzzle. We have somebody who embraces free speech. That's good. And he said some very clear things about uh, he's called himself a free speech absolutist, which is uh, an, a fairly extreme version of this um, belief. But he's also said some things that have an ambiguous meaning. And then under his, on his watch, we were watching the announcement. I mean, can we go back to that tweet again? How many crazy euphemistic terms are being used in this one announcement? It says, X has a responsibility, that's a red flag, to put the right systems, yeah. another red flag, in place to ensure red flag. Communities have access, red flag, to open red flag, why is accurate. Why is open a red flag? Open seems like the only the only thing here that uh, feels right. Well, for the fall, I guess the reason it's a red flag is have access to open. No, I think I I. But, that's that's the one right. piece of this phrase. I withdraw my here. red flag on to open, accurate. Right, says who? Red flag. How do they know? And safe red flag. For whom? political red flag discourse <laughs> what was political this is not this that's not why radical. no that's a red flag because why would you create a category here the point is free speech means butt the fuck out of what we're talking about and the fact that you define it as political or not political is irrelevant we are free to speak about what we think is well, important okay so i think political is um may be a red flag here only because of um the fact that the election is happening, we've got the Republican debate, any, like, like, like that we know that this is, this is not cryptically, maybe this is about politics, they're saying this is about politics. I, I get it. On the no, other I'm, hand... I'm agreeing with you. Oh, then I definitely agree with your agreement. <laughs> um, I So, there are obviously a slew of terms in this rather brief uh, assertion that are clearly about some process that is opaque and dangerous. That said, let us steel man the position. I don't think this could possibly be defended as a tweet, but it is true that Musk and the leadership at Twitter has to navigate difficult waters in the sense that what Twitter, what Elon Musk has said is that within the confines of the law, Twitter will not interfere with speech, which is a very defensible position. The problem is the laws vary between jurisdictions. Germany has been extremely aggressive in uh, enforcing intolerable limits on what Germans can read that have cascaded through Twitter because people who do not know that they are, are not attempting to speak to Germans in particular are saying things that Germany then exerts forces on Twitter that cause Twitter to not function like a, uh, a place where ideas can be freely exchanged. Really? Yes. Yes. This is Merkel's government. Oh, yeah. Yes. And so there's a European no context. Idea. There's a German, uh, a specifically German context. And I all of, and you know, let's... Let's give the man his due. He has a difficult job figuring out how to navigate a world in which lots of people are experimenting with intolerable limits on speech. And Germany has always been this way. Germany has always, since World War II, had limits on uh, things like um, 
the depictions of Nazi symbols. And you can understand why Germany would have leaned that way, but it also does things like creates uh, a problem, you know, when Roger Waters depicts Nazis and dresses up like a Nazi as he's doing a, a concert in which the wall is being presented. The fact that he's been doing that on stage for decades and that he's not embracing Nazism is irrelevant because he's doing things that, that according to the Germans, formally violate their policies. So anyway, yeah, Musk has a difficult problem. And there's a question. Musk is simultaneously running a business. He cannot, well, I, don't, I won't say cannot, he could, uh, subordinate the business's financial well-being to uh, its importance as a platform. And he could just simply say, we will, here are the rules, uh, here's how free speech applies on the platform and uh, what other, you know, countries can ban Twitter and then they will have to deal with their own populations uh, who will be angry that suddenly Twitter is not available. Are you arguing that you think this is a response to things like uh, German law? I'm not. I'm steel manning. What m the best possible okay. explanation for that absolutely Orwellian tweet is that they are trying to juggle a difficult set of constraints that are impossible to properly reconcile. That they well, are. And I mean, and someone with a with a different mindset might also read that tweet. If you would put it up again, Zach, I've never seen it until just now. Uh, the second part of it says that they're going to be hiring more people. Um, and there, it has certainly been widely discussed that the mass layoffs that happened when Musk took over Twitter uh, was about firing precisely people who were doing this sort of job. Right. Right. And <clears throat> who, were, who were putting ghosts in the machine, who were shadow banning people, who were effectively censoring content and and restricting reach of people who, um, you know, engaged in wrong think and wrong speak. And, you know, what what is this? Who are these people who are going to be hired if not, um, you know, one-to-one -one replacements for exactly those people who were fired? Right. I mean, it, another way to put it would be um, how many people does it take not to censor speech? My thinking is you could do that with very few people. Um, so, you know, <laughs> that's where we are. Again, I I want to leave room Look, my, my advice to you, Elon, if you're going to engage in some sort of needle threading with respect to other jurisdictions that have onerous restrictions on speech, you need to give us a wink so that we know that you are not backing off the commitment that you very clearly expressed to free speech as understood in an American context, right? This is an American company and... Uh, we understood you to be very clear that you were creating a public square in which, uh, other than the restrictions that come from actually illegal content, we were going to be free to exchange ideas. There's obviously a question about things that aren't ideas, things like doxing. There's a question about things like pornography. But with respect to ideas, there ought to be nothing that we cannot talk about on this platform. And to the extent that that's not going to be uh, the nature of the place going forward, we need such a place. And why do we need such a place? You can read it in the Washington Post of all locations this week. You can discover that what you did actually had exactly the impact that you claimed you wanted. And for you to back off it now would be a terrible misstep, in my opinion. So Please, Elon, send us a sign. Let us know that you're still committed to this and help us understand 
uh, what the constraints are that you have to deal with internationally, if that's in fact what's driving it. Because otherwise, what it seems like is that uh, hiring Iacarino was an indication of where Twitter is headed, and um, that's not a good sign. Uh, I guess, uh, <clears throat> given this is new new to me right now, um, and I have not read the article that you showed, the Washington Post article, I wonder to what degree you're compelled by its argument. Uh, it, it says, excuse me, <clears throat> oh, we had such a lovely rainstorm for two days and all the smoke is gone, but I feel like there's residual like pollen stuck places. <laughs> yes, I've uh, retained a bit of the smoke. I'm <laughs> yeah. getting rid of it slowly. Um but you know it, it what what just the little that you showed us of that article suggested that facebook again i'm going to continue to call it facebook meta at least is a name unlike x but uh, still facebook and youtube it argues uh have basically followed suit have waited for uh you know the fact that zero is a special number uh to uh to the 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 zeroness of it all to change. Twitter led the way. Twitter is now the one. And now Facebook and YouTube, that article would appear to argue, um, are similarly backing off of their mistis and malinformation policies. Uh, I'm not familiar with Facebook's really at all, um, but certainly we uh, we have been the direct uh, targets of YouTube's uh, policies. And I don't. I, I I would just. I guess I wonder if it's true. And I'm not saying. I don't. I don't. I don't even have. I don't think a guess as to whether or not it might be um, because it, it seems like, yeah, zero is a special number. It might well have followed. They, Twitter may have basically opened the gates for this. Um, but also 2020 didn't go so well for any, any of them. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, no matter what they did, they got grief from both sides and, uh, you know, basically saying, you know what? Okay. N no policy then. And yes, we're going to get grief from the people who want us to, you know, want us to do things. But at least if we don't have our fingerprints on it at all, you can't tell us we were managing it wrong because we have said we refuse to manage. So, I think you're you're opening a very interesting set of questions. It's possible that the that that article has a purpose, and it's not right. an admission because what it is is a an attempt an attempt to induce. The other platforms to double down on restrictions rather than follow musk in other words right. that functions right. as an accusation yep. that they are following suit which might cause them mm -hmm. to uh to um to protest and provide evidence that that's not true right uh it's also the case that we have legal precedent uh where the executive branch was caught red-handed dictating and the courts have now said this is intolerable so there is a formal restriction on what can happen so um how that all plays out i don't know but i i do think whether well, it what is... can happen from the executive branch i mean it, just as has happened in actual politics so you know there will be end runs created you know there'll be oh, lobbyists and packs and you know whatever will the... be, yeah yeah there will be <laughs> yeah. there will be an arms yeah. race about right. how many removes is far enough that it becomes right. legal. And I will say that there is legal precedent arguing that it would have to be incredibly remote. Um, so there are at least two important precedents in which private entities have been declared effectively public. Mm. Um, and, you know, so courts have said, look, you have to abide by the First Amendment because you're functioning in a governmental fashion. Yep. Uh, so anyway, the... It's an interesting set of questions, but I don't think it, I almost don't think it matters because 
what is contained in the article, whether it is designed to push people in a direction or it is an acknowledgement that they have been pushed in that direction, still the underlying thing that is true is the game theory below, which means that A, people like Musk have to be very careful what they do because the cascade, I think Musk understands this very well, the cascading implications of what they do are much larger than the platforms that they uh that they actually control, Um, which means they have to be careful in both directions because Mm -hmm. this is a one way, the game theory works in one direction. The lagging partner destroys their own business. The leading partner with respect to something like speech gets the advantage of being there first. So if, if you are the, if you're pulling in the direction of restrictive speech, then you're only going to have fools on your platform because who wants to have their own speech restricted? What you're going to have is people moving towards the platform where they're free to say the most things that they're interested in saying. Um, So uh, it is very important that Musk not blink because he's in the lead. And the fact is he could lose the advantage, the competitive advantage that comes from being first in this direction if uh, if he takes his foot off the gas and meta catches up and they're both restrictive zones, uh, but Meta is seen as slightly more free, for example, that would be a disaster for, not only would it be a disaster for free speech, but it would be a disaster for Twitter and Musk because it would mean that his uh, utilization of an actually free platform in order to recover his investment would be uh, would be stifled by uh, his competitors catching up. So, so that... I'm I'm way out of my depth here, but that that argument seems to work only for equivalently megalithic companies. So we're talking about Twitter, YouTube, Facebook. Obviously, there is an actual free speech platform uh, that is a direct competitor for at least one of those, right? right. Like, so you know, we are we are on Rumble now. Mm-hmm. We're also um, on YouTube, but uh, YouTube has treated us extraordinarily badly, and it is understood at this point to have been um, you know actively censoring and shadow banning and, and demonetizing not just us but many other people as well throughout uh, throughout COVID and 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 before. Um, we we we. We were the direct hit of it in you know beginning in 2021, and nothing has changed. Um, but you know, Rumble and Locals, uh, which are now a, a, a unit, um, <clears throat> is actively, specifically, explicitly a free speech platform, and is vying um, to be uh, uh, you know a competitor uh, worthy of sharing the same stage with YouTube, and it's an excellent product but it just doesn't have the market share yet so um so it's so what what you were talking about only works like you you were talking about like different weight classes yeah and it is a weight class issue and the reason that that weight class issue applies here has to do with network effects the fact is youtube has behaved abominably and that's not a secret and the number of us who have recognized it who have suffered from it uh is huge so that raises the question, why don't we just simply YouTube somewhere else? And many people are doing that. But the problem is that the audience who is not towing the line of what is, or towing the line is the wrong term, but is not up against the boundary of what YouTube tolerates. Just because it's not what they talk about. Right, right. Because for whatever reason, they're yeah. 
audience isn't large enough or their interests aren't controversial or whatever it is, right. that audience is still benefiting from the legacy of YouTube being the only player on the block. And so, for example, let's it's say... It's still got orders of magnitude, more uh, influence because it has the because it has the people. Right. And in yeah. some sense, let's take an example of something that isn't controversial that YouTube has done brilliantly that causes it to be very hard to turn off the lights at the fucking place, which is what we should do. The, the uh, catalog of how-to videos on YouTube is staggeringly deep. If you want to figure out how to wire a light circuit with control from two points, I mm -hmm. guarantee you that you'll find 25 videos there explaining how to do it. You'll find somebody who speaks in a way that you can absolutely understand it. And you can talk yourself through doing it even if you've never done anything like that before. Yep. That's a very powerful thing. There is no reason that couldn't live on Rumble. It could live on Rumble. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, how do you get what already exists in that library to move? And this is the same thing that's protecting right. Wikipedia. No, and, and you know, with I haven't ever looked for that. Um, but when you go looking for like, oh, I just need to figure out, you know, I, how do I do X in this piece of software? Yep. And, you know, sometimes you may just go to go to Google and look for look for the message boards. But um, sometimes you're looking for videos and you benefit from a <clears throat> depth of the library. <clears throat> excuse me um you, you're not you're not going to go to the platform that only has two videos if you go to the one that has 30 and you can choose among them yeah so what that explains is why there's a two-tiered system why rumble isn't immediately in a position to do to youtube what musk is trying to do to it um, and that is because it starts with a disadvantage that is not its own from size and so there is a very powerful argument. Why should you be on Rumble and not YouTube? Because Rumble will protect your speech rights, and that matters more than anything. Um, that's a great argument. And then there is the inertia argument that has us still visiting YouTube grudgingly to figure out how to do X, Y, and Z. Still has us going to Wikipedia to find out, you know, how deep, uh, you know, like Lake Victoria is. is. Right. <laughs> um, so those, though, that legacy uh, that keeps those platforms afloat also sets the boundaries of who is in a position to drive the game theory. Now, Rumble is doing a very good job of marshalling its primary competitive advantage into actually putting itself in a position to uh, dethrone YouTube. And YouTube mm -hmm. uh, ought to be paying really close attention because it could end up becoming MySpace, which, uh, you know, would delight many of us. So... Um, these things are coming and the next year is going to be fascinating because the battle over speech matters a great deal in the run-up to the next U.S. presidential election. Indeed. All right. Um, that's it for there? Yep. For then? Do you have a musical intro and do I need to beatbox in order to... <clears throat> I'd like you. Do you have a violin? Uh, <laughs> uh, I have a very small violin which I break out on occasions when mm -hmm. people have... Do you need rosin? <laughs> uh, yes, I believe the bow has been recently rosined, but okay. I would have to check carefully. Yeah, of course you would. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> okay. Uh, Chris Rufo, Christopher Rufo, has published a couple of pieces, a number of pieces in City Journal, and I want to share some from his most recent one and uh, from an earlier one and then talk a bit about... 
uh, some of the implications there therein. So, God, there's something in this air that is not that is not air. That is not that I'm not happy with. Um, okay, here we go. This is this is the piece, and you can put this up uh, that Rufo published uh, this week, August twenty fourth, twenty twenty three. In City Journal, a piece called Barbarism in the Name of Equality, an Austin-based doctor performs non-binary genital surgeries. And I'm just going to share a bit of, uh, a bit of the piece. In 2015, uh, Crane, a doctor, an MD, uh, received a flurry of publicity as an innovator in, I don't even know how to pronounce that word, vaginoplasty, I guess, vaginoplasty? Don't know. Yes, the uh, creation of a so-called artificial vagina. Um, in 2015, Crane received a flurry of publicity as an innovator of vaginoplasty, which involves castrating and creating an artificial vagina for male-to-female patients, and phalloplasty, which involves creating and installing an artificial penis for female-to-male patients. He boasted of a one-to-two-year wait list and claimed to have one of the highest volumes of transgender surgeries in the United States. Since then, business has boomed. Crane operates clinics in San Francisco, California, and Austin, Texas. San Francisco and Austin. Wow. Employs a team of five doctors and conducts procedures on more than 1,000 patients per year. As part of this caseload, his practice has veered into the disturbing new territory of non-binary surgery, which includes castration, eunuch, and nullification procedures, which Crane describes as the process of, quote, removing all external genitalia to create a smooth transition from the abdomen to the groin. End quote. Crane has also designed and performed hundreds of non-binary surgeries in which he fashions together both male and female genitalia for a single individual. That is, he creates an artificial penis for a woman while retaining her vagina, or creates an artificial vagina for a man while retaining his penis. Crane recounted the story of performing his first non-binary genital surgery in a question-and-answer session for potential patients. Quote, In the beginning of my practice, within the first year, I'd say, I had a trans man come to me and he wanted a phalloplasty, but he wanted to keep his vagina. His vagina. Crane recalled. After a process of soul-searching, he concluded that if gender was not binary, his surgeries did not need to conform to a typical male-female pattern. Quote, the patient wanted to keep his vagina because he got sexual gratification out of having a vagina, and I thought it's kind of assault to make a patient remove an organ that they're enjoying. Let's keep it. I have written um, fairly extensively about... Um, all of this, but um, insofar as we have been uh, very patient with and uh, even including of what we have called in the past true trans people, uh, a, a category I am increasingly suspicious of, but let's put that aside. It has always been abundantly clear to me. Uh, that non-binary is an affectation and a delusion and a fantasy and has no relationship to reality. And um, this guy, so he's making both people with supposedly both, both sets of genitals, and of course he's not, because you can't actually make a penis out of the skin from the forearm or a vagina by inverting tissue. Uh, you, you just, you can't. Right. Um, but he's also doing this other thing. He's turning them into Barbies and Kens. Right. He's making, what does it say? Um, removing all external genitalia to create a smooth transition from the abdomen to the groin. How, how does, 
how does this doctor have a license? Like, how is he right. like, what will it take? What will it take for everyone to start seeing the atrocities that are happening? And in the name of what it's not so this isn't, this isn't Nazi doctors pretending to do this in the name of science and medicine. This is this is pretending that this is good for people because it's kind of an assault to make a patient remove an organ that they're enjoying and we're just going to add whatever they feel like. Yeah. It's it's a couple of different things. I would call it evidence-free medicine. That's good. <laughs> That's really good. Thank you. Evidence-free medicine, yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. And yes, you by would. That, so will I from now on. What I what I mean is these tricks that the sophists sophists are using to get people to back off of actual logic are so powerful that there is essentially no argument that they cannot protect. The our inability to agree on anything at all anymore that we can't agree that two plus two equals four, that um, men can't become women, that pedophilia is bad, all the things that every reasonable person used to agree on. The fact that we can't agree on those things is evidence that the power contained in these threatening arguments is so great that what you would expect to happen if some doctor made this argument in any era in which anything functioned, then you would find the... Uh, medical societies, the journals would come down on that doctor like a ton of bricks and the clear burden would be on the doctor to prove that what they were doing was tolerable enough that it should not cause them to be um, thrown out of the profession. And into prison. And into prison, right. The fact that that's not even happening here and that they're just like, oh, well, that's nice. He's he's making non-binary surgeries. He's pruning uh, genitalia off of perfectly healthy people. I guess that's how, I guess that's the conclusion medicine's come to. No, it hasn't. What's happened is the threat of being accused of transphobia is so great that a doctor who wishes to innovate new, previously unthought modes of mutilation, that that doctor can simply do it because what are you going to do? say that doesn't make any sense you're mutilating people that would make you a transphobe which is of course the worst thing a person can be yeah. right that's where we are so it is these surgeries are postmodern in the most obvious sense they are utopian and i mean that in the sense that patients are being misled into oh yes we can do that for you no you can't you can do something the idea that you are actually giving a person the equipment that they weren't born with, you simply are not, nor is it conceivable that you could. And the evidence that that's true is obvious, and even the medical societies and medical schools can't manage to muster enough courage to point this out because the threat of this argument in public is so great that nothing can withstand facing it down. So... um we're getting there. Mm. Um, so there's a, there's a couple of quotes in the future here that um, directly relate to that. So I'm not going to respond to that until I get yep. in, until we we get there. Um, just one more short um, 
excerpt from this piece from Rufo this week about this doctor who is um, creating Barbie and Ken dolls and people with two sets of genitalia as well. Supposedly, Crane, the doctor, proposed two solutions. First, the social utopian solution to re-educate all of society to accept that biological sex is not binary. Quote, XX is not always female and XY not always male. And, quote, humanize this predicament with the end goal of acceptance of anti-normative sexual identity. Second, the technical constructivist solution to remove, alter, fabricate, and reorganize human genitalia so that transgender patients can, quote, become the people they were always meant to be. And, um, yeah, so maybe I should just go right to the, the, the previous piece uh, where Rufo was interviewing an excellent doctor who sees this for what it is. Um, but maybe before I do, uh, I will say, you know, A, many of the people who are arguing um, in favor of the mutilation of children um, have, have caught on uh, to the fact that, that many of their straw men positions are laughable. And apparently this guy hasn't, you know, it's not about the chromosomes. It's never been about the chromosomes. Uh, in mammals, uh, we have, we are, uh, we have what is called genetic sex determination, which really means chromosomal sex determination, which means that in almost every single case, in almost every single mammal, with a couple of species exceptions at the base of the mammal tree, that is the echidnas and the duck-billed platypus, we have uh, two um sex chromosomes, X's and Y's, and uh, females are XX and males are XY. Um, but those things are what determine what sex you are. They aren't what sex you are. Uh, what sex you are is about what gametes you produce. And um, the sophists have all sorts of ludicrous responses here about, well, okay, so I've got a developmental uh, disability which says, uh, you know, a disorder that says that even though I produce eggs, I should have been producing sperm, therefore I'm actually male. Um, so, you know, these people aren't serious. Um, they think they're serious, but they're not, and they should really, you know, get outside and do something real and stop destroying children. Um, but um, it's not about the chromosomes, um, but the idea that in the words of this doctor, transgender patients need to be able to remove, alter, fabricate, and reorganize human genitalia so that they can become the people they were always meant to be. This is, and I am not by any means the first person to point this out, but um, increasingly I think this is one of the main arguments we should be making. What you are doing is telling people that they are broken and that uh, they are not anything like what they should be. They should not accept themselves as they are. Uh, you, you should not accept them as they are either. You should celebrate the fact that they cannot accept themselves as they are. They should certainly not strive within themselves to make themselves better. Uh, what they need is, you know, techno-utopian intervention uh, that will surely destroy them and make them and guarantee their misery for the rest of their lives while holding them in sway to the pharmaceutical companies, uh, which doesn't sound like a, a wonderful future to me. No, and it raises, this is a, a point you and I have each made, but if we accept that the mind and the body of these people is in conflict, it is in no way obvious, and it is certainly not in keeping with any ancient version of trans that the right, right approach should be to modify the body. For, the one, for one thing, the body is a complex system about which we know very little and have even less power. Yeah. The ability to 
to create biologically is minimal. So the best we could do is simulate, whereas we could change your mind. And in fact, the mind is built to repair itself. And most people with dysphoria find that if, you know, in childhood, if they have dysphoria and nothing is done, they grow out of it. Right. So the point is the mind is, is, a, is a marvelous healing organ. And also some amount of the dysphoria isn't dysphoria. It's, it's imaginative play. Yep. It's considering what other possibilities there are. And you know what? When you're told as a child that you actually can't become a steam train or a rhinoceros, maybe you're devastated, but for fuck's sake, get over it. Well, and if you're told you can't become a girl or a boy because you were born the other thing, again, this is part of what being a human is and growing up and engaging your imaginative play cool. Don't bring the doctors into it. Definitely don't bring the endocrinologists and the surgeons into it. Yes. And don't blame society for restricting what you can do, because the fact is you live in a society that has never, there has never been its equal with respect to how free you are to, uh, you know, to subscribe to whatever gender roles you prefer. Right. Right. Nobody right. is telling you you have to live one way or the other. Or you have to go back to 1950 or anything like this. So the fact is the getting over it. What animal would you like to be? Mm, an otter. Okay. You can't be. Damn. Mm, that does suck. But learning <laughs> that it sucks and there's nothing I can do about it. And so I guess I'm going to have to, you know, live as a, a close relative of chimps. Well, that's weird. Every day. I swear it is. But uh, I am over it. I'm an adult and it does it's not. It's not the most beautiful, Clay. No. It's a terrible choice. Even Gibbons would have been a much better oh, one. But Yeah, but no. No, nope. we, we had to go. We it had to be the chimps. That's uh, that's God's little joke on us, I guess. But um, but anyway, <laughs> the point is okay. So we're chimp relatives. That is a strange sort of. It's an interesting hybrid between advantages and disadvantages. But nonetheless, wisdom is understanding that that's what you're stuck with and going with it. So and we lost our opposable toes. I mean, come on. I know where they are. They're just... Well, um, they're, I mean, we got bipedality, but I don't know. Uh, selection opposed them, and now they're, they're opposed toes is what they are. Something. Something. All right. That All was right. a pointless detour. But, but, but the point is, the getting over it is a developmental process. And these people are all as we about, called our episode last week. Deal, deal with it. Uh, deal. Uh, accept the hands you're dealt. Play, play the cards. Play the cards dealt. you're dealt. Yeah. We called it. So, the <laughs> yeah. the idea that proper development involves reconciling yourself to those cards, and you know, believe me, there are a lot worse cards than uh, wishing you had been the other sex. There's profound disabilities that people are born with that they then strive and overcome. Uh, this, this is just one of the ways in which a adult mind has to reconcile itself to the realities of the physics that we are constrained by, the biology, the era that you're born into, all of those things. And that um, I think there's something interesting in the idea that these people both want to block physical puberty and block mental maturation. And it really is a matter of... Uh, you know, a tantrum about things that you might want, but aren't supposed to be on the table. Well, I don't know. I, I'm not sure I agree with that last thing because I don't, it's not that the children, um, and it is, you know, the, the children who decide they want this thing, 
um, maybe being allowed to have a tantrum, but it's only on the menu because of the adults. This, like, the idea that you could engage in endocrinological and surgical malfeasance against children uh, was not the children's idea. Oh, it, that's they're they're not the ones I'm accusing of having a tantrum. It's the uh, the movement that has decided that society has to be turned upside down over this issue and that the correct intervention is surgical and uh, hormonal um, and that anybody who stand, who disagrees with those claims is in fact morally defective. Okay, so uh, Rufo wrote um, in June of this year, uh, uh, reported on a dialogue with a physician who he says works in a major children's hospital in a blue city. <clears throat> He's anonymous here. The piece is called Thrown to the Wolves, and I, of course, link these in the show notes. Rufo begins by asking, please begin by setting the scene. What is it like in a major children's hospital in the United States regarding transgender interventions for children? Physician, I think the best way to answer that question is to talk about the cultural shift that happened in 2020, because transgender ideology and COVID are inextricably linked. Normally, doctors operate by the authority of the professional societies that govern our specific practice. That worked because the individuals in those institutions were reliable, intelligent, and thoughtful. But with COVID in 2020, we started getting medical degrees without medical decree, decrees without peer review or evidence. You saw this with masks, social distancing, and emergency use authorizations. These decrees were expressed as something that everyone had to do without justification based on sound science. The other thing was censorship. If you were to ask questions or express doubt about these medical decrees, you would be ostracized within your department and you stood a good chance of being publicly humiliated, severely reprimanded, or fired. That's when transgender ideology really took off. Within these academic institutions, so-called experts in the field of transgender medicine would simply declare that purity blockers and other interventions were the gold standard of care. The evidence to support this is completely fraudulent, but no dissent was permitted. Everyone within the medical community knew that if he questioned transgender ideology, he would suffer the same type of repercussions that had happened during COVID. The best way to describe the environment would be as an authoritarian, censorious culture that discourages any meaningful debate and encourages the demonization of anyone who asks questions. I think this is incredibly apt. I would not have put uh, the rise in transgender ideology uh, as concomitant with COVID because we, of course, were seeing it um, before then. But it may well be that it took off and that we 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 don't know. And, you know, he, this is a doctor inside the system um, that it took off and became uh, precisely that doctors were even less likely doctors and nurses and all the other healthcare professionals were even less likely to raise a finger and say, wow, well, you, are we sure? Like, are, are, are we sure? Even just the, are we sure? Even just the, like, can I tap the brakes a little bit on this, uh, may well have, um, more or less disappeared as we saw the incredible social pressure that indeed, um, went way past, um, you know, shaming people into firing people into, you know, in, in, into totally diabolical treatment uh, with regard to um, the the COVID, the mainstream take on COVID, most of which was completely batshit crazy, uh, and the mainstream, um, at least according to the WAPO, and New York Times, and NPR and such, uh, take on on trans at this point, which is again completely batshit crazy. So I absolutely agree. Uh, I would not have put these two things right. in parallel, but having heard that. Right. description, it has the ring of truth, and yeah. it actually maps onto something which I've been, I've been trying to get others to 
to uh, embrace the formulation. And so far, people, uh, I think they get it, but they haven't seen how significant it is, which is the coup of public health against medicine. Yes. Most people don't mm -hmm. see these things as distinct, but public health is population-level medicine. And there's an argument for it because if you optimize for individual health, you may end up with a suboptimal outcome for the population, which is the ostensible justification for thinking at a population level. On the other hand, the problem is that the way medicine is supposed to function, remember, doctors are supposed to be scientists. You have a, a, a scientific degree and a history in which doctors discovered what worked, pooled their information, and a understanding you know, it was a, a therapeutic science, but it was a science nonetheless. What happens when, and you would imagine, if pharma was driving, it doesn't very well, if it wants to sell you stuff that's high profit and dubious efficacy and dubious safety, it doesn't very well want doctors around the water cooler to say, you know what, I tried that drug. It didn't work any near, anywhere near as well as the one that we already had. And what's more, I saw the following effects. And somebody else might say, yeah, I've seen that too. And what's more, et cetera, et cetera. Doctors pooling their information from a ground-up, decentralized, emergent knowledge base. That's medicine. Public health is an excuse for imposing from the top down an interpretation and then using coercion to prevent people from departing from it, which is what happened. Well, two things. I think um, trans ideology and um, SARS-CoV-2 are fundamentally different, obviously, with regard to uh, their potential to um, have implications broadly across the population. Now, trans ideology, in fact, is, but it's one individual at a time, right? And there's social contagion and all of this is true. But um, <clears throat> if, if what we were being told about SARS-CoV-2 and it's both its high um, case fatality rate and its high um, um, transmissibility um, were, were true, uh, then uh, the public health apparatus that was arguing for uh, for interventions that were functional, not the interventions that they actually put into place, which were not functional, but interventions that actually stop the spread of a highly infectious and highly deadly disease um, are the purview of public health. That is, that is what public health is supposed to be doing, right? right. And, uh, and trans is contagious at the social level, but it's not. It's not contagious in the same way. So you can't make an arg an argument in the same way. Well, that, I don't that 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 you could um, potentially for for a virus if all of these other things were true, which which it turns out they weren't. Um, but it's also, you know, I think pharma um, is in a very different role when it is trying to get people to take statins and when it's trying to get people to take vaccines. Because its role in in creating statins, which um, you know are dangerous and almost always not a good idea, um, is at the individual level. You aren't you you never are going to argue that you need to take a statin to protect your neighbor. Whereas the vaccine argument from the very beginning of vaccines has been in part one of things like herd immunity. Like everyone, we need more people to get these things so that the people who can't can be protected. That sort of thing. I'm not making the point you think I'm making. Okay. Um, my point is there is, in theory, something to be done at the level of public health. There are problems that are created by treating every patient as an individual. 
Now, I am less and less convinced that society ever has the right to prioritize populations and to harm the individual in that process. In fact, yep. I would never have said they had the right to harm the individual. There are risks that, are, that come along with this. Having seen what we've seen, I'm not convinced that the argument for public, public health, to me, is an academic science. Turning it into a therapeutic approach is problematic for all of the reasons that we saw during COVID. But my central point here is if you were pharma, then you would want public health emphasized over medicine. You would want it to displace medicine because medicine will prevent you from selling bad drugs because doctors who administer them will notice the effects and they will prefer the stuff that works because they are faced with the patient. So public health, but hold on, public health provides an excuse for overriding medicine, which is what the corrupting influence of pharma inherently wants to do. And what that means is that having carved out that territory, hey, there is a scientific realm that allows us to override doctors, is what trans ideology is now parasitizing. Okay, so you're, you're saying it, it's a way for, <clears throat> for pharma to get in the door and then override doctors, even in places where public health has no role at all. There's, exactly. There's, there's, no, there's no reason the public health should have an opinion about statins, I think. And I, I, maybe that's a silly example to be using because I think that that drug is insane. Well, um, but yeah, so, well, actually, so let's pick one that seems like it should have no public health consequences, but actually, um, hey, once again, it's probably the opposite of what, uh, of what you might think. Um, aspirin, let's put aside the NSAIDs, let's put aside the Tylenol, let's, let's take the, you know, the drug that has been on the market for longest and um, except in somewhat rare cases, we think is relatively safe, right, for adults. Um, but people take aspirin to reduce fever, and fever is very often an adaptive response. And so if part of what doctors are doing, but also public health is doing, is just trying to make you more comfortable and say, oh, you poor dear, you're experiencing these symptoms that you don't like. Here, let's get rid of the symptoms. What that's going to do very often is send you out into the world as a less symptomatic infectious person, uh, more likely to get people sick. So public health should actually be campaigning against symptom reducers right. in, in infectious diseases. But public health is doing nothing of the sort. Right. That, that is exactly the correct analysis. So public health is a set of arguments in isolation from any advice about how we should deal with anything. It is a set of arguments that are important to understand. It becomes an excuse to uh, coerce medicine. And once you've carved out that excuse, then everything utilizes it. And so yep. I, I would point out, how did public health get involved in the coercion of people into getting a shot that turned out did not block transmission because transmission is the entire reason that this is a public health question, even in theory. It was called a vaccine. Well, it was called a vaccine. That's one way. And the other way is the whole flatten the curve argument, the idea of overwhelming hospitals, which takes an individual level question and again makes it into a population level question. And so, look, pharma, pharma is aware of where all of the trigger points are in the structure of academic and medical science. Mm -hmm. There is one such trigger, for example, where, geez, if you were going to sell dangerous shit, you wouldn't want a control group because that control group is ultimately going to prove how dangerous the shit you sold them was. 
So how do you get rid of the control group? Ah, there's an ethical principle that if a drug is so effective at treating a condition uh, that, uh, you know, it reaches above some threshold, then it would be immoral not to vaccinate the control group or to, to administer it to the control group. Huh, that's a target they're going to have to hit every goddamn time they can't afford to have a control group, aren't they? And so the point is, well, gentlemen, get to work. We need to figure out how to marshal enough power that we can always hit that trigger so the control group always magically disappears. And my point is the public health trigger is another such thing. We always have to figure out why there's a public health argument for why we get to tell doctors what to do when ordinarily doctors would be discussing with each other what they should do. And so I'm going to claim that the idea of standard of care is, it's a code word for top-down, top-down medicine. And that's yeah. what they've done is they have displaced doctors who would otherwise figure out what to do painfully and with a whole lot of loss of life. But yes, doctors would figure out what to do and they would get better at doctoring, not worse. How do you prevent that from happening? You mandate top down. How do you get to top down? Public health. And so the idea that trans is riding on that carrier wave, it's, yeah, it's a parasite. Yeah. Yes. Um, and it is taking advantage of the fact that something has carved out the ability to tell doctors what they have to think. Mm -hmm. That's what's going on. But obviously it's a huge boon uh, to pharma as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it creates uh, perennial patience of anyone who starts down this this train. And, um, and you're, just, you know, you're, you're, a, you're a client, you're a customer of pharma for the rest of your life once you start. Yeah, so they're mutualists, actually. Uh, yeah. So um, <clears throat> a couple more, couple more quotes from this Roof article from June 2023. Uh, he asks this excellent anonymous physician uh, what is going on with um, the tenets of transgender medical theory and how they have changed medical practice. The doctor says, could you show my screen here? Um, but in reality, when you affirm these individuals' gender identity, what you are doing is affirming their hatred for themselves. You have these children who are going through confusing times, difficult times. When you affirm this belief system, what you are really doing is telling them, you hate yourself at this moment, and I will affirm that. We have to ask ourselves, why do these people have such high rates of suicide? Because we're affirming that they should hate themselves and that they should try to destroy themselves. So that's extraordinary. And uh, one last thing, from which I want to come back to at the end of this conversation, but... Um, the very last long extended quotation from our physician here. Again, please keep my screen up. Um, one of the, the, the physician writes, one of the things I've been thinking about is what puberty blockers do to children. This medication is called a gonadotropin releasing hormone agonist, and it comes in the form of monthly injections or an implant. And because it simulates the activity of this hormone, it shuts down the activity of the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus is this almond-sized structure in your brain. It's one of the most primal structures we have, and it controls all the other hormonal structures in your body, your sexual development, your emotions, your fight-or-flight response, everything. But it shouldn't be described in such cold physiological terms because your hypothalamus is not just a hormone factory. It's the system that allows you to stand in awe of the beauty of a sunset or to hear the sounds of orchestral music and to stop whatever you're doing and want to listen. And I always think that if someone were to ask me, where is it that you would look for the divine spark in each individual? I would say that it would be somewhere beneath the inner chamber, which is the Greek derivation of the term hypothalamus. To shut down that system is to shut down what makes us human. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, um, 
it got me thinking again about the hypothalamus. Um, and well, one of the things I did, I just went the very last quarter that I was a professor, um, that I was teaching was fall 2016 because I was on sabbatical the next two, uh, quarters. And then I think, um, did you invite a mob of students to your classroom May 23rd of 2017, or did they just show up? Like, it's hard to remember. It's so long ago. Um, but anyway, the last time I was in the classroom full-time was fall of 2016, and I was teaching a full-time program on vertebrate evolution. Um, and part of, part of the program included a comparative anatomy lab. We were dissecting um, sharks and cats. And then with regard to neuro, um, uh, we did shark brain dissections and, and sheep brains. And I just went back and looked at my um, my notes on um, from the from the neuro lab um, that I that I gave to the students, uh, and included in it is uh, just my here little definition of uh, the hypothalamus. And you can show this if you want. The hypothalamus has diverse roles, including homeostasis. It organizes endocrine, especially pituitary and autonomic functions controls motivation relating to temperature regulation, hunger and thirst, and regulates emotional and reproductive behavior. It's gigantic, right? It's doing, it's doing all of these things. And, um, you know, the brain is, is, is complex. And it, the hypothalamus is part of the di diencephalon, which is the second of the five primary parts of the brain. Uh, it's part of the forebrain. Um, it's, it's part of the brain that is uh, expanded um, specifically in birds, but, um, but also to some degree in mammals. And, and boy, do we, boy, do we need it. Um, go on. Well, I was just going to point out that in one way, that list is a mind-blowing collection of important things. It is also, it implies something because we're not talking about a huge structure. We're it's talking, tiny. we yeah. are talking about a. It's not tiny, but it's small. A yeah. set of black boxes that are connected through this mechanism which nobody can yet understand we are a long way from having any sort of detailed understanding of how this thing integrates these things we can just sort of list if you destroy the hypothalamus i don't know if you can survive that but um yeah. but nonetheless if it is damaged here are some things that we see uh, are impacted by it so the point is it is an integrator of fundamental things i mean in that list is motivation so you telling me that you feel comfortable disrupting something that is in some way we cannot specify involved in motivation? Isn't motivation underlying exactly as that doctor was arguing the most fundamental things about being human, what, what you will choose to do with your precious time on earth? Yeah. Um, so, so it's a welcome to complex systems it, well, uh, ex moment. Exactly. Um, so let me just... Uh... I wasn't going to share this exactly, but I think maybe I will. I'm gonna, let me see. I think that's the part I want to um, share. Maybe Zach, you can now, oh, wow, that did not work at all. <laughs> that's terrible. Uh, you can show my, so hold on just a second, Zach, don't, don't do it yet. Um, yeah, here we go. So this is um, from the National Library of Medicine. Um, it is related to NIH, but, um, uh, it's a place you can go um, for a scholarly, like you have to understand some of the language, but um, a relatively robust, it's sort of an encyclopedia, encyclopedic uh, place for the current thinking of various things medical and uh, 
and even some some things that don't necessarily have obvious medical implications. Um, um, but so this is about gonadotropin releasing hormone analogs. Gonadotropin releasing hormone being something that is produced um, at the level of the hypothalamus, and it in it in turn produces releases um, luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone, uh, which in turn promote a cascade of the various sex steroid hormones, which are androgens in in males, testosterone and androstenedione and such, and estrogens in females. Uh, so it's you know it's at the top or at least high up in a uh, a cascade um, that affects lots and lots of systems. So. Um, background on so the analogs um are going to be oh we figured out things that can actually do the kind of work of uh, gonadotropin releasing hormone cool isn't that awesome what could possibly go wrong welcome to complex systems uh well here if i try to make this bigger unfortunately my whole screen goes wonky so i'm gonna just have to read it in this small font uh gonadotropin releasing hormone is a decapeptide doesn't matter that is produced in the hypothalamus and acts upon gonadotropin releasing hormone receptors on the surface of gonadotropin cells in the pituitary gland, stimulating the release of luteinizing hormone and follicular stimulating hormone, which in turn stimulate the production and release of testosterone by the male testes and estrogen by the female ovaries of placenta, as I just said. Gonadotropin releasing hormone is typically produced in a pulsatile manner, and its synthesis is regulated by circulating levels of testosterone in men and estrogens in women. Infusions of gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonists, that is, things that enhance the production as opposed to antagonists that inhibit the production. So uh, infusions of GnRH agonists produce an initial transient increase in sex hormones, but with continued non-pulsatile stimulation, both luteinizing hormone and follicle-stimulating hormone synthesis are inhibited and estrogen and testosterone levels decline. So GnRH analogs, and you can give me my screen back here, um, are uh, used, um, they are, they're dangerous. Uh, they're used primarily uh, for um, treatment of prostate cancer, and they are increasingly used off-label as puberty blockers for people who present as trans. So the most famous one, the one that people are likely to hear of, have heard of if they've heard of any of them, is Lupron. Uh, that's the that's the trade name, um, but there are many others, and um, I guess I wonder if you want to tell like when I when I first was thinking on this, you know, this we are familiar with this at some level, right? Like I mean, and I used to teach gross anatomy, and you know, there's a, but but we're not endocrinologists, and um, and while luteinizing hormone and FSH follicle stimulating hormone are you know part of a, you know a, a background, a training in, in biology, it's not our our first language, um, and the idea that you could either use a um, a GnRH agonist or an antagonist to block puberty. And both of those types of things are used to block puberty, which is, again, not safe, not re recommended. You should never, ever do it, um, but is fascinating. And it seems at first, like, why would that possibly work? Like, how is it? You, wouldn't you just want to block it, use an antagonist, block it and be done with it, um, if that's really what you want to do, which, again, you shouldn't. Uh, why does an agonist work at all? Why does giving the body more of the thing help to ultimately, and in not too long a period of time, um, stop the production of that thing in the body entirely. Um, and we have we have a unrelated but kind of comparable An endocrinological analogous. story from a 
beautiful former Epic Tabby of ours. Yeah, we had a, a lovely cat. He was the sweetest, sweetest cat I think we've ever had um, uh, named Abercrombie. Yeah, and he had, uh, he had extra digits and he stood like he had little mittens on. It was very, very cute, very sweet animal. Um, anyway, he uh, had multiple run-ins with death the law uh, he was he, the law yes but he was also uh, rescued by veterinary science more than once and one of those cases uh you are on topic but i would just say that uh, when i i joke that he had multiple runs with the law he actually at one point had managed to con a uh an elderly neighbor of ours that he was despite being obviously well taken care of and uh and 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 well loved uh had conned her into believing that he was homeless and so she started putting food out for him so he started to gain weight on our watch <laughs> <laughs> like, what is happening and uh at the point that we finally got him to keep a collar on himself for a while she showed up at our door i think and i was like but but he's my cat like no he's 12 and he's been ours for a very long time <laughs> yeah he, he was crafty and he was very hard to say no to um yes. actually the story in question though happened with the opposite issue where we started yes. to notice yes. that he was getting thin and running hot mm -hmm. he was like literally uh warm to the touch uncomfortable and you know, he was not a fat cat. But no, he, but he was lolling about miserable. He, be, he yeah, became he was, inactive. and He was, he was not happy. Yeah. And what it turned out was that he had a thyroid tumor. And cats have an interesting difference uh, from, from us, which is that their thyroid is actually divided into two. Now, that divided into two plays into the story very interestingly. There is a, uh, a marvelous therapeutic option in the case of a cat with a thyroid tumor. And it works like this. When a cat has a thyroid tumor, the thyroid that is afflicted with the tumor, which is one of the two uh, uh, units that the thyroid is divided into, overproduces its product. The body is monitoring the products of the thyroid. And in response to the one side of the thyroid overproducing, the other side of the thyroid shuts down because- you Don't need any more for me. Right. So the animal still has too much of the product, but it has one of its thyroids sidelined. Now that actually allows you to cure this disease in a very interesting way, which is you can give them radioactive iodine, which does not sound all that safe. It is uh, pretty well regulated and it is much safer than you would think. Um, radioactive iodine does not have a long half-life and uh, a, an owner can actually, with a small number of uh, uh, precautions, control that I, mean, I think we, we had to be in quarantine for a, a week or so right and we, we and kept we, him yeah. in a room alone and you know we and dealt we, carefully with his litter box yeah, and all yeah. of that but anyway um you give the animal the vet gives the animal some radioactive iodine iodine is taken up by the thyroid which is um why you are instructed to take iodine if you are in a, a zone where there has been a radiological release um, so that you pick up non-radioactive iodine, it fills your thyroid, and you don't pick up any of the radioactive iodine uh, that has been uh, produced in the reactor or whatever. But anyway, the vet gives the animal some radioactive iodine. The thyroid takes it up, but not on both sides because one side is shut down. So the side of the thyroid that is healthy does not get the radioactive iodine. The side of the 
thyroid that is tumorous does pick it up, and the nature of the radioactivity is such that it destroys the tissue only immediately adjacent to where the iodine actually lands. So it, it destroys. Beautiful. This yeah. is just it's such it's a such beautiful a, medical veterinary same thing, right? Uh, success story. Yeah, it's just it's a, it's yeah. taking advantage of this just lucky fact that the thyroid is divided in, in the cat. Um, but anyway, the thyroid, the tumorous part, is destroyed by this, but the tissue even outside of it is left more or less intact because the radiation doesn't penetrate very far. At the point that the thyroid that was tumorous is destroyed, the other one begins to detect there's not enough hormone being produced and it comes back and the animal can live the rest of its life with the other thyroid um, functioning and it does a fine job. So what we watched was an animal that was, uh, I don't know that wasting, wasting away is probably a, yeah. decent description but he was hot and uncomfortable and losing weight and dwindling before our eyes yeah. and then this uh actually put him right back on track and he put the weight back on and was again his healthy happy self it was a it was a beautiful process but anyway it goes to your question of um why does an agonist work right, right. so um a gonadotropin releasing hormone agonist uh uh effectively, ultimately shuts down your own body's production of gonadotropin-releasing hormone, because by flooding your body with it, uh, with the synthetic version of it, your body gets the, uh, gets the message uh, that it doesn't need to produce any itself. It's already got enough. It doesn't need to produce any itself. And if I understood, this is the first time I've encountered that description of how this system functions, but it sounds like the key is that you give a sustained dose and the response uh, is, to a sustained dose is to shut down production of the hormones that would be involved in normal puberty because what is otherwise delivered is a pulsing dose and it is that pulsing dose that is part of health. Now, that... Yes, the pulsatile thing is is remarkable. Like it, we, We're also, in addition to all the other errors we're making, we are not paying attention to things like periodicity and timing. Right, periodicity and timing, and probably the pulsatile nature allows a modulation that in that the system, you know, is effectively able to check with a periodicity where it is and thereby modulate, rather than just turning the thing to eleven and it shuts things down. I'd be I'd be curious what happens at the end of normal puberty, whether you get a sustained yeah. signal or something like that. Yeah, and I don't um, I don't know that off the top of my head, um, but. You know, there there are those, there are those people who would say, well, yes, obviously, surgical intervention for children is not not wise, and oh, we don't want to put them on cross sex hormones because that's you know that's not good, but puberty blockers that's harmless. No, it is not. Um, I would not want any child ever. Um, I was going to say anyone I cared about, but any child ever to be on any of these things. Um, but if I had to choose, honestly, I think if I had to choose between um, a child being on cross-sex hormones versus being on puberty blockers for a short period of time, I think the cross-sex hormones might be safer because, because um, you are, you know, boys do produce some estrogens and girls do produce uh, some androgens and the ratios are going to be messed up on cross-sex hormones for sure. Uh, but the puberty blockers are messing with systems that go way deep and are, um, you know, are, are even more ancient and are even more fundamental in some ways. And just a reminder that, you know, the, uh, the hypothalamus is this 
incredibly important and central and fundamental part of our brain. And I'm just going to read this one more time from this physician uh, from that Rufo interviews in this June 2023 piece in City Journal. Uh, I'm going to read the whole, this whole thing. One of the things I've been thinking about is what puberty blockers do to children. This medication is called a gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonist, and it comes in the form of monthly injections or an implant. And because it simulates the activity of this hormone, it shuts down the activity of the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus is this almond-sized structure in your brain. It's one of the most primal structures we have, and it controls all the other hormonal structures in your body, your sexual development, your emotions, your fight-or-flight response, everything. But it shouldn't be described in such cold physiological terms because your hypothalamus is not just a hormone factory. It's the system that allows you to stand in awe of the beauty of a sunset or to hear the sounds of orchestral music and to stop whatever you're doing and want to listen. And I always think that if someone were to ask me, where is it that you would look for the divine spark in each individual? I would say that it would be somewhere beneath the inner chamber, which is the Greek derivation of the term hypothalamus. To shut down that system is to shut down what makes us human. Yeah, that is a, um, a stunningly well-articulated argument. Um, I hesitate to do this. I do want to add something to it. It would, it would be great to just simply leave it there. But the argument you are making about children shouldn't be put on any of this stuff, but if you had to choose, you would choose the cross-sex hormones rather than the puberty I so. blockers. I, I think you're right, and I think that there's a very strong analytical reason to presuppose that that would be the less destructive intervention. And that is that what we're really talking about is an intervention that is upstream of many processes. And the fact that it is upstream of many processes means, yes, you can interfere there, but you're interfering with everything else that is downstream, which is a tremendous number of important things. And some of what we do not even know. Right. And that is really the thing. And that much of it is not reversible. What I would want people to understand when they are talking to a scientist or a doctor or a governmental uh, regulator about these interventions, you need to look at this person, no matter who they are, and you need to understand they comprehend a tiny fraction of what you would need to know in order to do this well and fully anticipate the consequences. There is no one on earth who knows the system well enough to do that. There might be circumstances in which you have to make choices. You have to accept costs because the pathology that you're faced with is so severe that you don't have a better choice. We make those, those choices. We, you know, remove tissues that we don't fully understand because they're tumorous and will kill you if we don't. But in the case of somebody who is going to go through development, and then you're going to interfere with something as central as the hypothalamus in uh, in adjusting some feature of their pathway. You are inherently interfering with a tremendous number of things that are simply black boxes from the point of view of our current state of understanding. There's no way that that could possibly be safe or reasonable to do. And in the case where you've got, again, somebody with a mismatch between their cognitive understanding of who they are and their physiological nature. Cognitive intervention is A, one that people naturally go through, and B, much more likely to work without having devastating consequences. Mm -hmm. 
getting a child to understand that they that these are the cards that they were dealt some of them may be unfortunate some of them may be just fine and really the reconciling themselves to those cards is the way to be but that is the nature of growing up and interfering with growing up is nobody's uh nobody's right these children have a right to grow up as normally as possible and that may be perfectly normally and you're disrupting that so it can never be undone so it seems to me very, very clear, and that this, in a world in which people were not feeling threatened by the accusation that they were anti-trans, then we would obviously be able to talk about things like any intervention should be as far downstream as possible. The yeah. more upstream your intervention, the more likely it is to have devastating consequences you can't anticipate. That's right. And I think, you know, just having a bias towards um, interventions when you decide that such things are necessary... Uh, should be as old and as tested as possible. Um, and simply having something be old um, means that it is likely to have been tested, even if not by science explicitly. So um, if you tend towards depression, there's a decent chance that going outside in the sun and moving your body hard uh, will help. And you should do that first and second and third and fourth and fifth you should do that a lot of time before you ever consider taking a pill for the fact that you are depressed you should not trust that the interventions that the people with the prescription pads are offering are the right ones we've moved into this this mode of giving up assuming that we ourselves have no agency at all, but somehow these other people with degrees that are frankly meaningless or worse have all the agency and have all the wisdom. And it's not true. I mean, if, if you can't see how misled the people with the prescription pads have been in the last three and a half years, like what, why are you still believing them? When they come to you and say, I can solve that dysphoria for you, I can stop your puberty, I can turn you into something you never were and never will be. No, they can't. And whether or not they're lying to you or lying to themselves first doesn't matter. It's not going to help you. It's just not. So this, it's, this, is, this is madness. And there are some indications that it's turning around, that some people are waking up, that the number, the number of people who know people with trans kids is, is so outrageous now. But it's, it, it, it can't be soon enough. This needs to have never happened. And second best is it needs to stop. All of it needs to stop now. Yeah. We, we have to maim nobody else. And yeah. the, by allowing this to continue every day that it continues, uh, new people are uh, pushed into something that can't be undone. That's right. You know, it also occurs to me there's something just so obviously wrong here. And I think many people have spotted this but figuring out how to how to say it so that it is generally understandable is important the idea of blocking puberty obviously um girls are not immature boys so blocking puberty is it suggests that medicine knows what to do after that to create the equivalent of the puberty of the other sex which medicine absolutely does not know how to do so at best, what it can do is it can 
simulate some fraction of that, either with surgeries that create structures that aren't what they appear to be, or with hormones that would be part of that process, but are hardly the sum total of that process. So we are inherently talking about a medical arrogance where there are doctors dumb enough to think they know how to simulate the other puberty once we blocked the one that you're headed towards. I guarantee you there are no doctors that know how to do that. There just simply aren't. We're not anywhere close to that level of knowledge. I'm sure you're right about what's actually happening, but just so you know what the argument is there, they will tell you that they block pu puberty and then as soon as they stop blocking it, it comes back. Oh, I know I know what they just say. Just so you know what they're... Right, but... Well, again, but, terribly arrogant argument is that knows nothing about what will actually happen, but, but that's what they say. But Dad's argument here is... Um, that if if those people on puberty blockers um, do decide to go down the path to transitioning, which again, crazy, um, they should be experiencing the puberty of the other sex. And um, you know that's that that thing that you just said, Zach. Um, if it were true, <laughs> would would be fine for those people who experience puberty, you know, who who have their puberty blocked for six months and then go off them and everything's as normal. That's of course not true. Um, but the point there is uh, that uh, we are told by the activists that some number of these people are actually trans and then they they're going to need to have the other thing. And it's like, well, okay, so. Um, so you decided that puberty just isn't a thing at all. You've just decided to go from uh, prepubescent boy to woman or prepubescent girl to man. Like what, what happened to adolescence? And adolescence, despite what the postmodern idiots will argue, uh, is not a creation of capitalism or 20th century America or any of the other insane things I've heard people argue. Adolescence has always been a thing and different cultures have understood it differently. But uh, it, you know, the, there is a stage between childhood and adulthood, and uh, humans are not totally unique in having such a thing, but uh, we are um, fairly rare, and you can't just, we're not, we're not frickin' butterflies, and even if we were, what's going on in the cocoon is something we don't know exactly what's going on either, so... It's such incredibly, incredible arrogance. Yeah. It's such incredible hubris, and... You know, their their argument is both wrong and also doesn't deal with the situation, which is supposedly their preferred outcome, which is that you were born, you were assigned, a, you were assigned a male at birth, but now you've come to realize that you're actually female. And so we're going to block your puberty and voila, turn you into a woman because that's what it is. That's it's that easy. Well, it's the same argument. It's the same misunderstanding about humans that they have across the board, which suggests that genitalia and hormones are the only things that make you male or female. Right. Which, if well, and were... lipstick. Yeah, that's too. <laughs> um, but, I mean, this is seriously what they think, and if that were true, I don't know. They still aren't anywhere near being able to successfully do anything, but it would sort of make sense at least. No, the, the argument that they are making does not stand up. The only thing that has caused it to uh, get as far as it has is the threat to anybody who points out how absurd it is. Right. And in part, in, in one of the things that I really like about this you know, short piece, everyone should go read this, this roofer interview with this doctor that I read substantial portions of here today. Um, but his, his point, the, uh, the doctor's point, uh, that when you affirm someone's delusion, you are affirming that they should hate themselves as they currently are. And um, to the degree 
that, you know, the stats have been juked all over the place with regard to like, oh, you know, trans people have the highest rates of suicide. Like, actually, um, this has been uh, debunked. Like, this, this is not true. But do people with mental health problems, such as depression and autism, both of which are correlated with being gender dysphoric, um, are they more likely to have suicidal ideation? Yes. And um, are they perhaps more likely um, to succumb to such ideation, to spend more time in that space if they've been assured by all the adults around them that they're right in imagining that they are wrong and bad and flawed? Well, yeah. How about actually encouraging your child to be who they are as opposed to what their fantasy of what they are is? We could, we could go on. I could... I could keep ranting forever, so yeah. I mean, we should stop. Well, I, I do. I want to add one more thing, yeah. which is that um, there is a very deep concern one should have that the idea of spreading that story about suicide yeah. also predisposes people uh, who discover that this is not the solution to the problem. I mean, you can imagine. Let's say that you you're betrayed by civilization. You're not given a coherent uh, path through development. You have hormones that disrupt normal development pollutants as pollutants in your food and your water and your air and all of these things. So things are not going right. And then somebody says, hey, you know what? I know why things aren't going right. It's because you were born in the wrong body. You'll see. It'll change everything. And you believe them, right? I can imagine a desperate person believing them yeah. and then discovering and especially in the first flush of the agonist or that like you it's like as i've as i've heard you feel it's you're on you're on sex steroids right at least it feels different if, and, and, it, and it and it at the very beginning it feels different and it feels exciting and you're like this is it right this was the magic bullet that i've been waiting for Right. This is it. And then if it doesn't work, the point is you've told people something about what comes next and you had no right to tell them that. It's part of a manipulative story that is built to uh, get people who would otherwise raise an objection to not do it for fear of what it might lead to. But the point is you are setting people up to consider that as an option when in fact the right thing to do is to say, look, we are all born into a world that doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense at the moment. That is the nature of modernity. And the question is how to figure your path through it. And there are ways. And telling people that, yes, you really are hateful the way you are and uh, we can make you into something that wouldn't be was a you lie. You can't do it on your own. Right. It, you're going to need not, our help. It's not a cognitive question. You need doctors. Yeah. Um, and you're going to need doctors for the rest of your life. Some people are just like that. They need a lot of help. It's terrible. It's criminal. It is. It is criminal. It is criminal. Yeah. And we really are talking about. Uh, we're talking about maiming people. We're talking about maiming them psychologically. We're talking about maiming them physiologically and morphologically. All three of those things are on the table here, yeah. with as a result of the standard of care that we are being uh, coerced into accepting uh, top down. Yeah. And. Uh, it's despicable. It really has to stop. Yeah, I agree. All right. Uh, I think we've come to the end. We strongly encourage you to join us at our Locals uh, channel, which you can get to from Rumble or from Locals. It'll be in the show notes. And uh, there's a lot, lot going on there. The watch party that goes along with our live streams happens there. Uh, we release the guest episodes uh, that you do. 
uh, a day early there. We did, we've begun doing our private Q&A uh, live streams at our locals. And uh, is Discord yet available on our locals or is it about to be? Actively happening. Okay, awesome. Uh, so that's that's going to be happening very, very soon. So uh, please consider joining us there. Uh, we really appreciate it. It helps us out and uh, it's turning into a great community. Uh, we also, of course, have a store, darkhorsestore.org, and I write at Natural Selections at my Substack every week. And um, I had a little thing, some things to say about, um, I think I'm mispronouncing her name, Megan Rapinoe. I've never actually heard her, her name, but the... Uh, the extraordinary soccer player who's also an extraordinary Trump hater. I wrote about her a little bit this week. Um, she's really, really good at both she things. She excels in two seemingly yeah. unrelated disciplines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I wrote about her at Natural Selections this week, just a little bit. And, um, and yeah, uh, we've, got, we've got exciting things coming up uh, in, in the near future, but uh, do consider checking out the locals and also our sponsors this week, which I didn't change them from last week's show notes. Our sponsors this week were Seed, House of Macadamias, and American Heart for Gold. So um, check them out, uh, share share the video, uh, like it, subscribe, and uh, know that we appreciate your support and your enthusiasm for what we're doing here. Until we see you next time, be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. Be well, everyone.